Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. A population in Virginia who is very upset about the fact that a a foreign institution like Parliament across the ocean is trying to govern them. They they see themselves, and they say this a lot, that they're going to be nothing but slaves if if Parliament is allowed to do this. And now that Parliament seems to be willing or eager to disarm them. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Mike Sasir talking about Patrick Henry's raid on Williamsburg. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the University of Pennsylvania Press, publishers of Captives of Liberty, Prisoners of War and the Politics of Vengeance in the American Revolution by T. Cole Jones, available wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, our guest is friend of the show and Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Michael Sasir, And he'll be talking about an event that could have changed history, but at the time, fortunately, did not. Uh, And this is going to be Patrick Henry's raid in 1775 on Williamsburg. Now, uh, as I've mentioned, Mike Sasir has been on the program before. He's a longtime Journal of the American Revolution contributor, a prolific writer. He's an author of several books uh, and a high school teacher. He's got a very clear focus uh, on the geographic region of Virginia, most notably Williamsburg. And because of that, in my opinion, He's the leading expert on the topic. He's going to make a case today on the show uh, that the American Revolution was not um, written in stone. The events that happened did not need to happen in that order, but that is just how they did. And that's how history is, right? There's contingencies all around. Uh, Lexington and Concord, 1775, right? These events hold a special place as the quote-unquote beginning of the revolution. But if you study the war, north, south, east, or west, of course, you know that there were a lot of events like Lexington and Concord that were near misses, events that could have happened, events that uh, would have changed the course of history, but through diplomacy, uh, through compromise, did not. That's one thing we really have to understand about battles. I hosted a television series about battles for four years. I wrote a book uh, called Battlefield, Pennsylvania. I am something of a battlefield historian, even though I didn't plan on that. And I don't mean studying individual battles, but how we think about battlefields, how we remember battlefields. And what we have to remember is that battles are a result of a failure of the system not the system working. Uh, So when shots were fired at Lexington Green, that wasn't because something went right. 
It was because a lot of miscommunication and mishaps sort of collided in one catastrophic event. Uh, Most of the time, people work it out. Most of the time, people compromise and find a way out. Um, You don't want a lot of battles, right? Not a great thing. Uh, But they do happen. And when they happen, it's important we remember them. At any rate, Mike Sasir gets into all of this. uh, And the article is phenomenal. Uh, So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Mike Sasir. Mike Sasir, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Tell us about your background. Um, my background. Well, I this is my 30th year in the classroom teaching. Uh, I teach now in Gloucester, Virginia. I live in Waynesburg, Virginia. And uh, so I've been teaching American history for quite a while. I've been really keyed up on the revolution for the last two decades when I started reenacting back in 1999 and caught kind of the bug for that. And that lit a fire under under me for research. So I've been, when I'm not teaching or reenacting, I'm researching the era and uh, written 16 books now on, on the revolution, almost all about Virginians or Virginia in the revolution. And I'm hard at work on the next one and uh, trying to expand my horizon a little bit, but I'm also write a lot of articles for the Journal of the American Revolution. So you could even say since we moved to Williamsburg three years ago, my wife and I, that we uh, were completely obsessed by the time period because uh, we moved here to be close to the revolutionary city, the colonial city. So that's me in a nutshell. What first drew your interest into this topic? Uh, Patrick Henry. Well, there's several uh, um, factors behind that. Uh, first, the man himself, uh, and, I, and I first came to learn about Patrick Henry through an amazing interpreter at Williamsburg um, named uh, Richard Schumann, who's been portraying him since the 90s, the 1990s, and just just a captivating um, talent there. And what what I find with Patrick Henry is just inspirational. So what drew me to this article, uh, I was the spring of 1775, everybody's focused on, uh, on Lexington and Concord, and rightly so. But here in Virginia, pivotal events took place at almost exactly the same time, just two days later, when the gunpowder was seized by Lord Dunmore. That was a big deal in Virginia. Um, in fact, Virginia was all riled up uh, for 10 days before they even heard about Lexington and Concord. So Henry's March was one of those moments in history where it's, a, it's a, like, um, I guess, a near miss. I mean, we could have had bloodshed and warfare here in Virginia six months before we actually did. See, we didn't start fighting in Virginia until October, in uh, late October 1775 down in Hampton. Prior to that, it was a lot of yelling and, and militia drill and such, such but really, really no bloodshed. And when Patrick Henry came bearing down from Hanover County to, uh, to get that gunpowder back that Lord Dunmore had seized from the powder magazine, he had 150 armed men, and um, Dunmore was a pretty rash man, and he was threatening to burn the town and arm the slaves and, and uh, fight back. So we, we had a confrontation brewing. What kind of a city was Williamsburg? in 1775. A lot of us have been there now. What was it like to live there 
uh, just before the revolution began. Ah, uh, that's Williamsburg. We are so lucky to have a place like Williamsburg even today. Um, first, to call it a city is is really misleading, but it was. You're absolutely right. It was, it was a city. It was chartered as a city in 1722. Um, and what was going on, it was a city of 2,000, 2,000 permanent inhabitants, but that, that population would swell uh, to almost 6,000 anytime the um, House of Burgesses was in session or the merchants were meeting or, or even fairs were held. They had a couple of fairs every year uh, in town. So there were a number of courts, uh, the courts, the um, that was also important. So, so it was kind of like one of those, it's, it's like a state capital today. I've been to a lot of state capitals on the East coast, at least. And some of them are kind of small cities like Trenton, New Jersey, Augusta, Maine, things like that. And in the weekends, they seem to like just close right on down because all the workers are gone. But while the government work is going on, they're thriving. And that's what Williamsburg was, was like in a lot of ways. Um, it was basically a 50-50 uh, mix in population, 50% free white and 50% uh, enslaved uh, black Americans or Virginians. And um, in terms, so in terms of a thriving metropolis, it was certainly no Charleston or Philadelphia, but it was, it was an important um, city here in Virginia, of course. Uh, there are two rivers on either side of it, the James and the York, within just a, a few miles uh, by carriage or horse to each river, because we're on a peninsula here. So it's not perfect for, um, for trade. It never became as big as Norfolk or any of the other port towns, um, but it did have access to the rivers, and it also made it quite vulnerable to attack, which is one of the reasons why in 1780 the capital gets moved up to, to Richmond. That's one reason. But uh, Williamsburg would have been uh, the center of, of politics here in Virginia, for sure, in 1775. The governor of Virginia is John Murray, famously known as Lord Dunmore. Um, how was he dealing with revolutionary rumblings up to this point? Yeah, he's a fascinating character, John Murray. First, he, uh, he has, he, he's dealt a hard hand because uh, he, he's replacing a very popular governor, Lord Botetourt, who died um, prior to Dunmore's appointment. And Dunmore had been um, governor of New York, which he apparently preferred, although Virginia was, was a, in, in many ways a more important colony in the empire. thrilled about leaving New York City and coming to, uh, to Williamsburg. There's not much of a comparison between the two metropolises, so to speak. So when he got here, I think it was 1771, maybe 72, um, things were, were relatively calm. Um, now, the, the, when the Untarable Act started one by one to drop in, in the summer of 74, um, the Virginia leaders, legislative leaders, Peyton Randolph, uh, Patrick Henry, uh, Richard Henry Lee, those men, um, they basically rallied to Boston and passed a day of uh, what, prayer and fasting and humiliation. June 1st, in fact, the day that the... Um, um, Port, uh, Boston Port Bill was to take effect and close down Boston Harbor. Well, Lord Dunmore um, suspended or, or dissolved the House of Burgesses. That was actually a re resolution passed by the House of Burgesses, and he he dissolved it because he felt that the resolution was an insult to the to the king's authority and such. Um, only he had the authority to pass such a day 
of prayer. So that was the beginning. That was it. And now Dunmore is essentially taken aside. Now he does get a, a chance to redeem himself in a sense because there's problems on the frontier uh, with Native Americans. And so he, he leads an expedition against, uh, I believe it was Shawnee Indians in 1774 in the fall, which is now out in West Virginia, and defeats them at a, at a battle at Point Pleasant. He actually wasn't at the battle, but you know, he was the overall commander. It was forces under General Andrew Lewis that, that won. And and so he's able to kind of come, return to Williamsburg in, in um, um, December of 74, kind of victorious. And also, um, i got to get this straight, but I think soon after his wife gives birth to a child who they named Vic, uh, Virginia. And, um, and his wife was very popular. Um, in social circles. So, so things are going all right, really, for him in 1774, in, in a sense. Although Virginia's leaders are, are right up there leading the way towards supporting Boston. You know, they go to um, the uh, First Continental Congress and all. Where it all falls apart, I mean, really, it's the seizure of the gunpowder on, uh, on April 21st that really just turns everything around for poor uh, Dunmore. He doesn't handle it well at all. Um, you know, they, he orders, he has a, a, a landing party from a ship, a British warship, the Matt Magdalene. Yeah. Um, that's anchored out in the James river. They come in in the middle of the night or actually early in the morning of, um, April 21st, uh, and steal 15 barrels of powder out of the magazine. When that is discovered, um, Dunmore is essentially implicated in that, in, 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 the, in the theft, and a large crowd wants to march on the palace and all that. It's really what happens the next day, though, that really puts him in hot water because guys like Peyton Randolph were able to kind of calm the situation down. But then the next day, apparently, Dunmore runs into a doctor, Pastor, and makes all these rash threats. And Dunmore had a temper, apparently, so he makes these rash threats of, arming the slaves and burning Williamsburg to the ground. If anybody dares to, to threaten him, he himself or his assistants, a guy named uh, Captain Foy uh, and, and the captain of the, of the ship, the British ship, Magellan, uh, Captain Collins, or Lieutenant Collins. And so um, basically when that start, word starts to spread, then letters start to appear or reports start to appear from London of letters that he had written, that Dunmore had written in December which essentially um, criticized all the goings-on in Virginia and made it clear that Dunmore was not on their side. And believe it or not, Virginians, although Dunmore is kind of a foreigner, he's a Scotsman now, he's not a really a born Virginian, Virginians expected their governor to represent them. And when they started reading these accounts of, from London of Dunmore's correspondence to Lord Dartmouth and the British ministry, they realized, hey, this guy is, is working against us. He's, he's actually trying to, to um, um, undermine us. And then, of course, on top of all that comes the news of, uh, of Lexington and Concord, and it just kind of spirals out of control from there. But, and within two months, he's gone. He's, he's, he, he feels he has to flee for his own safety. This may be a, a sort of a direct question, and I don't mean to be crass, but what was he thinking with this move? I mean, taking gunpowder uh, out of the public sphere was very incendiary. What was his thought process? Well, we do, we're lucky. We have his letters. Um, now, I know there are some 
I mean, there's there's some that that will argue that he was following orders, that orders came in from the ministry to uh, seize or secure all the gunpowder um, in the colonies, and because this wasn't the only time in in the thirteen colonies that powder had been seized. I mean, I remember reading up in New Hampshire and I think it was Rhode Island there were incidents in December of gunpowder being um, taken seized by uh, by by the colonials, not by the British. So um, essentially there was a scramble for powder that early in some places. But with Dunmore, I have to look it up in my, um, my, my notes because I want to get the quote right. Well, it's in the story. It's in the article. There's a, Basically, Dunmore writes a, a candid letter uh, to his superior there, Lord, uh, Lord Dartmouth, explaining that it was the um, essentially the speech of Patrick Henry, the resolution passed at the Second Virginia Convention um, that was proposed by Patrick Henry to place Virginia in a more in a better defensive posture, meaning every county should have at least one company of volunteer militia who drill regularly. That kind of spooked Dunmore, and so he took the measure. Um, he I mean he took the action of seizing the gunpowder. Let me see there. So um, Dunmore explained his, his thinking. He, he, first, I, I should mention, he was confronted by a delegation um, from the city, from Williamsburg, led by um, Peyton Randolph himself, demanding to know why the powder had been taken. And he basically admits in his letter to Lord Dart, uh, Dartmouth that he kind of just made up an excuse, um, that it was essentially, old. Uh, he had heard rumors of a slave revolt, so I wanted to secure the powder. Uh, in, a, in a more secure place, which was on board a ship in the river. But uh, in, in truth, he writes to Lord um, Dartmouth, and he, sa- he basically says, the series of dangerous measures pursued by the people of this colony against government, which they have now entirely overturned, and particularly their having come to a resolution of raising a body of armed men in all of the counties, made me think it prudent to remove some gunpowder, which was in a magazine in this place, Williamsburg, where it lay exposed to any attempt that might be made to seize it. And I had reason to believe that people intended to take that step. All right, so what he's clearly referring to is the, um, the second convention's decision, um, thanks to Patrick Henry's liberty or death speech, uh, to um, better organize all the counties. And so he wants to essentially snatch that, that gunpowder uh, from the market, so to speak, so it wouldn't be available to any of these um, armed militia that, that are forming, including in Williamsburg. Williamsburg had their own um, city uh, volunteer militia company. So that was his primary reason. Now, when I read that letter, I don't see anything that suggests he was following orders from London. What I see is him taking his own initiative. But, you know, it is open to interpretation because there, there, um, there was apparently a circular letter sent at some point um, instructing the governors to do what they can to, to kind of secure the arms. And, and they, they definitely had... Parliament had already banned the exportation, or I should say importation, into the colonies of any more gunpowder. How did the colony react to this seizure as a whole? Mm. Well, as I mentioned before, the, um, um, the, it, it, it was an explosion. It's just, a, just an explosion of outrage. Um, and it's, it's really neat. I think Patrick Henry himself, uh, in a sense, sums it up. Uh, we have a, a quote from him. 
and and it always reminds me of even the modern day, you know, today with the, uh, the with the N, uh, National Rifle Association and and such, in which he he basically says, you know, people can gotta find that quote. Here it is. Here's the quote that he he expresses concerning the seizure of the powder. You may in vain talk to the people about the duties on tea, etc. These things will not affect them. They depend on principles too abstracted for their apprehension and feeling but tell them of the robbery of the magazine and that the next step will be to disarm them you bring the subject home to their bosoms and they will be ready to fly to arms to defend themselves so in other words talk all you want about um, 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 no taxation without representation that's kind of abstract but take away their weapons take away their ability to defend themselves and now you've struck a nerve and that's what Patrick Henry was thinking when he decided to act. So um, there was a, quite a bit of uproar, and it wasn't just Henry. Uh, there were uh, all, nearly a thousand um, militia that had assembled in Fredericksburg. Um, the word had spread up to Fredericksburg, which is about a hundred miles north of Williamsburg, and uh, they were. They, it happened. A Hugh uh, Mercer, who will become a general who is killed at the Battle of Princeton, um, he basically sends out messages to the other counties or around Spotsylvania County and Fredericksburg saying, hey, on Saturday, I think it was the 29th, we are planning to march, probably ride. I think it was all going to be mounted. We're planning to ride to Williamsburg to demand the powder get returned. And so hundreds of, of armed men came to Fredericksburg that weekend. But it just so happened they also sent riders from, from Fredericksburg back to Williamsburg to get to kind of double-check the information they had received. Um, a gentleman named Man Page made the ride in, in record time. And when he got there, he was told by the Speaker of the House of Burgesses, Peyton Randolph, the most respected man in Virginia, hey, calm down. Everything here is under control. Uh, we definitely don't want your men, the men from Fredericksburg, to come into town and stir things up. So ride back and tell them not to. And so that's what uh, Man Page does. He rides on back with the word, and then the guys in Fredericksburg are in a dilemma because they, they, they feel, we got to do something about this powder, get this powder back, but we don't want to disrespect the speaker. And so after a lot of debate, they decided, no, we're not going to march, but, we're gonna, but we'll make a statement that we're ready to march as soon as needed if anything else happens. Well, Patrick Henry was doing the same thing down in Hanover County. Um, and he, did, he, he wasn't directly appealed to, to to stop or anything, but um, when he heard that the Fredericksburg militia, or the guys in Fredericksburg weren't going to march anymore, that didn't stop Henry. He was, he was determined to continue on. So his march, there's a, there's a town, uh, it doesn't exist anymore. It's completely gone. It's just a farm field now, but it was called Newcastle on the Pamunkey River. And he had, uh, there was a meeting there of, of Hanover men mostly um, from Hanover County. And he gave a speech that riled them all up. And by now, everybody knew about Lexington and Concord, too. That was the other thing that happened. That news came on, arrived right about the same time they were deciding whether to march to Williamsburg. And so Henry knew about that. And he used that. And he says, come on, can't you see there's a systematic plan to disarm us? We need to get that powder. And so they... Basically, the, the commander of the militia was so inspired by it, he stepped down, and Patrick Henry became the leader of this little group, which grew to about 150 men, and they marched from Newcastle 
through New Kent County, and you could follow some of the roads, the, the, the actual paths. You could follow a lot of it, be, to be honest with you. Um, and they stopped at a place called Don Castle's Ordinary, which is really right off of an exit off of uh, I-64. I laugh because it sounds funny. I don't mean it like that, but that's where the location is. It's just a field next to a development now, but it's right there. Um, I think in the article, I took a couple of pictures of the location. And uh, they, they, they had to stop and rest, and that's when the rest of the story unfolded. Why does the, the great battle between Patrick Henry and the forces of Lord Dunmore never come to pass? How was this avoided? Absolutely. It could have been, been a second uh, kind of Lexington, in a sense. You would have had a showdown. Um, so Lord Dunmore is in, um, is in Williamsburg, and everybody in Williamsburg has probably already sighed um, a little bit of relief that the Fredericksburg men from oh, the militia in Fredericksburg are coming down, but now they start to hear about Patrick Henry. And Henry's already had a reputation, even to this day when you go there and you ask the other uh, character interpreters about Patrick Henry, they all roll their eyes and say, oh, Henry, he's a blowhard. You know, he's a, he's a hot-tempered, you know, know-it-all kind of guy, always, always threatening and talking. And so... Uh, what started to happen is they realized, oh, God, Henry's not going to stop. So um, Dunmore finds out about it and essentially prepares uh, to, to defend himself as best he can. He doesn't have much there, um, a few servants and even slaves that he'll arm. And um, what happens is a, uh, when, when, when Henry stops at Don Castle's Ordinary, he's about 16 miles from Williamsburg. And um, a gentleman named Carter Braxton rides out and basically implores him on behalf of almost everybody in Williamsburg, don't come, don't go any further. And Henry says, I don't, we, we got to get that powder. We're going to get that powder. Um, and so what happens next is Braxton rides back into Williamsburg with this idea to get payment for the powder. Because, you know, the powder is secure on a British ship in the James River. It's not it's not going anywhere. And so he's able to convince, I'm not sure who, the, um, maybe the um, receiver general, I believe, to, um, to issue a, a, treasure, a promissory note, I think it was, for 330 pounds, I guess the estimated value of the powder. And then Braxton rides back out, and that's, he offers that. I think uh, Thomas Nelson Sr. from Yorktown was also involved in, in – um, getting that payment and all. And he was the president of the kind of the, the privy council for the governor. And Henry now has to make a big decision. Do I push this thing or do I, I declare victory? I take the payment and I declare victory. And I think he wisely picked the right choice. He said, okay, all right, they've, they, we've, we've made our point. We have payment. I'm going to take this money to Philadelphia and I'm going to buy the uh, replacement powder for it. And then we're going to move on. So, he dismisses uh, his men. He goes back to his home in Scotchtown to get ready because he's on his way to Philadelphia to join the Second Continental Congress. And uh, he's already late for that. And the other delegates have already started. Most of them have already made their way. I would love to have it would have been interesting if Peyton Randolph and Patrick Henry ended up riding together. I know, I'm sure they didn't because I, I imagine Randolph didn't like Henry very much. But um, nevertheless... That, that's how you avoid. That's how we avoided the big confrontation. 
um, kind of a little bit of compromise there. What does this event reveal to us about the Revolutionary Era? Ah, great question. Um, I don't know. I, looking at this event, you know, I, there's so much out there. Even today, in the 20, in 2021, people are making all kinds of um, claims about what the revolution was about. Uh, you know, about keeping their slaves. Now is something I've been hearing, um, which to me, having read a lot of the primary sources, seems seems. A, a, Incredible stretch. No, uh, what, what I see, what I see in this incident, incident uh, or instance, is um, a population in Virginia who is very upset about the fact that a, a foreign institution like Parliament across the ocean is trying to govern them. They, uh, they see themselves, and they say this a lot, that they're going to be nothing but slaves if if Parliament is allowed to do this. And now that Parliament is, is, seems to be willing or eager to disarm them. And nothing good in their minds can come from that. If you disarm the population, you, you, you take away their ability to resist and, and defend themselves. And it just fills into that narrative in their minds that they're trying to enslave us, at least politically. You know, they're trying to politically enslave us and to take, take away any, any self-rule, self-government that we've long had. And so that's what that's – and, of course, all you got to do, I mean, just look. What, what, why did the British march into the countryside of Massachusetts in the first place? It wasn't to pick a fight. It was to seize weapons and, and powder at, at Concord. And now, same thing seemed to happen here in Williamsburg uh, two days afterwards. I mean, it took 10 days to get the news, so – um, it wasn't so much a, a, a reaction to Williamsburg; it was probably coordinated. Uh, and so, and, and so, the level of suspicion just skyrocketed after, after this. So, I think that's the takeaway there. Um, these folks felt now under siege, in a sense, by by the British, and they felt that they had to stand up to defend themselves, or they were going to lose that ability very quickly and then be nothing but slaves to the British. Mike Sassir, thank you for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.